Right, what were you going to say, Lucy, when you jumped in? No, I was just saying, hey, Ben, I thought we were meant to jump in. <laughs> yeah, so oh, it's like sorry. a radio program. I meant to, yeah. What, do you want me to... You, say hi. No, that's fine. No, I just wasn't here. sure what was going Good on. Here, <laughs> well, okay, I can, that's such a fair point. I can do it again. You don't it have makes to. sense. Otherwise, you guys won't be in it. That's a fair point. I'll probably thank put, you for letting us say hello. Oh, hello and welcome back to Empowercast. I'm Sunny, and with me are my co-hosts Erica and Ben. Our podcast aims to provide an overview of subjects offered in the Master of International Relations at the University of Melbourne. We hope this will give current and future students a student perspective of the different subjects offered as part of the MIR. But first, Ben will be enlightening us on the Asian values debate. So let's get started and I'll hand it over to Ben who will be taking us through this week's global discussion on the Asian values debate. So, one of the debates that has interested me recently is around Asian values and their attraction to certain political system types. Essentially, the debate is that Asian values and beliefs being different to Western perspectives and originating out of different cultures, histories and beliefs have caused Asian states to reject political systems that are accepted in the West, particularly for democracies. I specifically looked at Singapore when writing an essay on this topic, but I thought it's a very decisive area of discussion and it would be great for a podcast episode. Now, naturally, when talking about Asia, we have many different cultures, religions and values. So with that in mind, we will unfortunately be prone to simplifying things in this discussion and talking broadly about, about this debate and around this debate. We recognize it's significantly more complex and deeper than just culture, but we just found this topic interesting. So I, I wanted initially to talk about Confucianism and its values and beliefs that can be seen in states like China, Singapore, Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, Vietnam, Malaysia and Thailand, amongst others. These values and beliefs are categorized and described roughly as the primacy of nation and family over the individual, consent over dissent, ideas of hierarchy, strong and experienced leadership, stability and communitarianism. You also have themes of the nation as like a big family. The government is kind of seen as the father and society considered the children. But there's also a strong belief in the idea of a leader as someone who sets an example for the rest of society, leading by his ability, not the imposition of his will. So with that, just outlining the values that I've sort of seen and come across when researching in Asia, I, I have also got Eric and Sonny on the podcast and... Naturally, the, those, these two are from Asia, and I think it would be good to get their perspective. We also have another Empire member, Jake Black, on the podcast today. So I was wondering what their thoughts were on their own experiences and research in Asia. So I thought I would start by getting the views of Erica in Japan. So Erica, what would you say are some of the values and beliefs expressed in Japan? And do you think it has any impact on like the political system in Japan today? So I personally think that policy choices are shaped primarily by the historical trajectory in which institutions have developed and also by material interests rather than cultures or values. But when you consider why Japan with its um, Westminster style parliamentary system imported from the UK has had the same party being dominant for so many years, it's tempting to assume that there are 
is some significant role of cultural values in the background. Culture does definitely influence and dominate political discourses in Japan. So this is my personal opinion, but the reason why P- PM Abe, the former PM, stayed in power for so long despite his numerous domestic scandals is because people acknowledge that political stability needs to be prioritised for the benefit of the country. But however, it's also important to note that this desire for this stability is not just a cultural one, but also from recent political experience. So prior to Abe, we had 1pm a year, and it was clear that this musical chair's leadership caused too much confusion and uncertainty to the country, which was already losing its economic power and international presence. I guess the main point I'd like to make is that culture is mutable in Japan. Social relations have shifted between stark and rigid hierarchy, Uh, There has been tremendous social change at times with strong upward mobility, the Gekokujo period, and egalitarianism. Uh, Political arrangements have shifted between highly centralised to decentralised. Also, gender relations have also shifted between relative female equality to the subordinate role as good wives and wise mothers, the Japanese word ryosai kenbo. Culture changes over time, and societies have many competing in different cultures within as well. So there are no timeless norms or an essential Japanese culture. Japanese culture changes in response to changing circumstances and political and economic conditions. For example, external invasion and occupation or an internal collapse of an old order. But there are... Uh, Japanese values that shape communication. I think a famous one would be the difference between honne and tatemai. So what you present outside is not necessarily the same as what you feel on the inside. What that means is people tend to pay a lot of attention to what the group is saying and control what they express as an individual based on the opinions of the people around them. Also, um, I'd like to mention that the main difference between the Western states and Japan on these democratic systems and human rights is that we imported these systems rather than achieving them in the course of history. So these democratic systems were not won by the people like the French Revolution, but provided to the people by the government which may be why the democratic system might not be appreciated by the people as much compared to some European countries. But uh, what I'd like to mention is, in this interconnected world, nowadays younger Japanese people tend to get their ideas from Twitter, Instagram, sometimes Facebook, and are not necessarily bound by these cultural ways of thinking. Even though the size is small compared to the states. Um, There has been Black Lives Matter protests and climate change protests in Japan at the same time as the global protests. Though previously, like these kind of things might have been considered as a non-Japanese thing, perception towards what can be accepted from a cultural perspective, I think has changed, 
has shifted and I think will continue to change over time. So in the case of politics, I think there is no definite Japan model built on a set of Japanese values. I think that we are seeing a slow progression to a more democratic system over time. Thanks, Erica. The other area I'm curious about is South Korea because it provides a good counterexample to this debate. Jake, could you shed some light on your perspectives of South Korean values and its political system? South Korea has been influenced by Confucian values for centuries. Today, it is perhaps more influenced by these values than any other society in the world, including China. The most fundamental aspect of South Korean society, underpinning all social relations, is a strict age hierarchy. The year in which you were born plays an incredibly important role in shaping your social relations with everyone you interact with. When two Koreans meet each other for the first time, often one of the first things they will ask each other is their age. If one of them is younger, they will have to speak to their older acquaintance using an honorific speech style. Maybe they then go to a bar to share some soju, a popular alcoholic beverage in Korea. The younger person will pour the drink for the older person, holding the soju bottle with two hands as a show of respect. The younger person will then hold out their shot glass, again with two hands, while the older person reciprocates, but the older person holds the soju bottle with only one hand. After clinking their shot glasses, they will each take a shot, but the younger person will turn their head to the side as they do so, once again showing their deference to their older acquaintance. When it's time to go home, the younger person will slightly bow as they say goodbye. To an outsider, these social rules may seem overly complex, but for Koreans who have grown up in a society that deeply values deference to elders, they come naturally. Going almost hand-in-hand with South Korea's strict age hierarchy is its power distance. In the workplace, you are not only expected to show deference to your superiors, but questioning their decisions can often be taken as an affront. To illustrate this point with an example, I turn to Korean Air Cargo Flight 8509. After taking off from London in the middle of the night, the captain tried to turn the plane but his malfunctioning instruments led him to believe that the plane was not turning, and it crashed, killing all four on board. Analysis of the plane's black boxes showed that the co-pilot's instruments were functioning correctly, but yet he made no attempt to challenge his captain's decisions, despite surely being aware of the plane's impending fate. Thirdly, like its neighbours in East Asia, South Korea is a collectivist society. Whether you are looking at a family unit, a workplace, or even Korean society as a whole, there is a strong emphasis on acting in the best interest of the group and not standing out from the crowd. After a long day at work, it is often expected that employees will join their boss for dinner and drinks. Refusing to attend, or even just refusing to drink alcohol, is frequently perceived as showing disloyalty to the group. And, combined with a strict age hierarchy and emphasis on power distance, these after-work events are often associated with bullying and sexual harassment. So, how do these values factor into South Korea's politics? It would seem that these values are prime building blocks for an authoritarian system, and you would not be entirely wrong for thinking so. South Korea did experience authoritarian rule from 1948 to 1987, but the country has a long history of strong protest movements. Several protest movements against Imperial Japan, dating back to the first half of the 20th century when Korea was under Japanese colonial rule, form a significant part of South Korea's national identity.
and this culturally ingrained form of resistance has repeated itself ever since. South Korea had its own Tiananmen Square moment in 1980, before the Tiananmen Square massacre itself, when thousands of pro-democracy protesters in the city of Gwangju were killed, raped, or tortured by government troops. But this only led to more pro-democracy protests in the 1980s, with democracy ultimately prevailing seven years later. Recent years have seen South Korea experience some of the largest scale protests in the world, with millions of citizens pouring onto the streets to condemn corruption and demand accountability from their elected leaders. All of this is not to say that South Korea has abandoned its traditional values during the process of democratization. On the contrary, its traditional values may actually be helping South Korea's democracy. In particular, the collectivist mentality of South Koreans may explain why they seem to be so good at protesting. When their elected leaders are no longer serving the interests of the common good, South Koreans will quickly come together in mass numbers to demand change. But while South Korea is what I would call a pretty healthy democracy, it does have some elements that would perhaps be more commonly associated with authoritarianism, and this is where we can see the concept of power distance combined with the collectivist mentality. One particularly relevant example today partly explains South Korea's success in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. When a case is confirmed, health authorities have almost unlimited freedom to access mobile phone data, credit card transactions, and CCTV footage. In Australia, there was widespread concern and criticism over the privacy implications of the COVID-safe app. Meanwhile, in South Korea, a much more pervasive system of tracking has had a much more subdued reaction, with the vast majority of South Koreans happy to cede some of their privacy for the greater good. Ultimately, we can see that when South Korea's leaders are perceived to be serving the interests of the common good, its citizens are happy to accept a great deal of power distance and allow policies that, in a Western democracy, may be criticized as being authoritarian. But as soon as the leaders act in their own interests and shun the common good, expect to see South Koreans out on the street en masse. Thanks for that, Jake. I also thought I would ask Sunia what her perspectives were regarding Pakistan, even though it's separate from this specific debate uh, not being part of Southeast Asia and, and, and Central Asia specifically. But I would say it's an interesting country that would contribute to this debate and regarding values and their impacts on political systems. So what are your thoughts and perspectives, Sunny? So similar to Erica's perspective, I also think policy is largely shaped by the history of institutional development and national interests over cultures or values. But in the case of Pakistan, which similar to Japan also had the Westminster system imported from the UK, um, Pakistan has also had um, a long troubled relationship between its civilian governments and army rule. But here, I do think it's important to note that um, Pakistan was under British colonial rule for a long time. And when it gained independence, it, it inherited just 17.5% of the financial structure of British India, but it also inherited around one third of undivided British India's military, which is a large percentage given that Pakistan is geographically much smaller than independent India. Um, on top of that, with the Kashmir issue, the political issues with India, and the fact that the army has always been funded and under the influence of the United States, the Pakistan military emerged dominant and often overthrew civilian governments and continues to rule them behind the scenes. So at the moment, there's a hybrid regime. 
However, the people of Pakistan are culturally largely anti-imperialist and pro-democracy, and so since independence, there has been a consistent resistance to the domination of the military in Pakistan's political sphere. The people refuse to accept military rule or the military's influence in Pakistani politics as legitimate. And so with large civilian protests, resistance, and a strong culture of anti-imperial and anti-military poetry and art, the people have over the decades helped restore democracy at various times. Um, I'd also like to mention that Pakistan is a Muslim-majority country, and so Islamic values and culture does influence political discourse in Pakistan. It is unlikely that a law that is against the fundamental values of Islam would be passed in parliament or gain much political or public support. For instance, in Pakistan, things like alcohol, gambling or living relationships prior to marriage remain illegal and are criminal offences for Muslims in the country. Um, But in a nutshell, the people of Pakistan have a culture that is largely Islamic um, and they strive for a strong and robust political culture in which the army has no interference in the political sphere. Thanks, Sonny. This naturally brings me to Singapore and my own views and experiences from living and researching in Asia. So Singapore could be held up as a leader of the Asian values debate. Lee Kuan Yew, a previous Singaporean Prime Minister, was one of the first individuals to suggest a different and unique path for Asian governments. Anyways, I focused on a survey done across 11 different countries in Asia regarding political system preferences and cultural values. And this is what I'm sort of going to be talking about in my perspective. So Singaporeans were found in this survey to prefer a hybrid regime over other types of political regimes. A hybrid regime in this example will contain both elements of democracy and authoritarianism. Specifically, it was 40% of the survey that voted for a hybrid regime, followed by 20% who voted for a one-party state and 11% that voted for a democratic system. Additionally, another interesting point was Singaporeans' responses and desires surrounding the three main principles of popular rule in democratic systems. Singaporeans expressed significant support for government by the people, with 80% of the sample agreeing to a government made up of Singaporean citizens. However, only 36% endorsed a government of the people and 46% a government for the people, suggesting that Singaporeans may play more of a passive political role in things like their voting, for example, or demonstrating, whilst also not supporting the notion that a leader is potentially beholden to satisfying every desire the people has. Maybe, for example, a leader does what's best for the people, even though it might not be what they want, for example. These results suggested that Singapore's cultural values and beliefs could influence the political regime type they prefer. Uh, Particularly, it would suggest why a hybrid regime with both democratic and authoritarian principles is favoured. Furthermore, the survey tested the attraction of the East Asian population towards liberal democracy, and if their decisions and actions would differ if hypothetically given more freedom, with individuals expressing a willingness to embrace and uphold Confucianist cultural values and beliefs as a result. Specifically, respect for an for authority and withholding dissenting views, especially in a group setting to maintain stability, were emphasised in the results. But more broadly, themes of collectivism, hierarchy and communitarianism, which are reflected in Singaporeans' Confucianist values and beliefs. Now, this survey naturally has to be balanced against recent elections in Singapore in 2020, which delivered record results for opposing parties, but also showed that under the threat of COVID-19, 
People were still willing to vote and express their desires in significant numbers. Potentially, as highlighted in Jake and Erica's parts on South Korea and Japan, this could be to do with a dissatisfaction in the government. And when there is this dissatisfaction, political participation increases. Additionally, we have seen demonstrations in Thailand over the monarchy and the government. So this debate is still very much open-ended, with counterexamples being made evident all the time. But it is still a very important debate and makes us think, has Asia created its own version of democracy with Asian characteristics? Is democracy, when merged with complex histories and cultural values and beliefs, the reason for this hybrid political system preference, rather than either solely an authoritarian regime or a democratic one? Or is it factors beyond culture, both separate and connected, like for example modernization, economic success and development, or is it a generational effect? And will Asian countries simply slowly turn into full democracies over time, or will they regress? Regardless of your view, this has been an interesting topic that we've all discussed, and I hope you got something out of it, so thank you for listening. Today we are going to be discussing the internship subject and getting some more personal experiences on what the subject's like. You are listening to Ben Sladen, Lucy van der Stolk-Ku, I am Para President, and Anthony Cap, a fellow GEMO committee member. Say hi guys. Hello. Hi. Hi Ben. So without further delay, let's get down to business. So the Master of International Relations internship subject has some requirements, such as a student having to be in the final 100 points of their degree and have a GPA of 75 or above. However, I've heard this has been now lowered to 70 from students studying the subject this semester. But also it is worth mentioning that if your GPA doesn't match the requirements, it doesn't mean you shouldn't apply if, let's say, you are one or two points off. As we were told when we applied for the subject, that it's flexible and they try to accommodate everyone. Additionally, there's an application form and three rounds of intake for students, which will cover summer, semester one and semester two. The first intake is at the end of October, the second is at the end of January, and the third round closes at the end of May. So now that's all the information out of the way and the boring stuff, myself, Lucy and Anthony are going to discuss what we thought about the subject. So we're going to start the application process. So what did you guys think? Uh, the application process, it was fairly straightforward um, in the initial stages, signing up for the subject and getting approval. Um, the hard bit comes afterwards when you have to find a placement. Yeah. For me, at least, uh, I handed in my um, CV um, to several different places, but um, I ended up getting an offer from the Sri Lankan consulate because I um, applied through Consular Call, which hands out your CV and everything to various different consulates around Melbourne. So it's uh, several birds with one stone sort of thing. So I'd recommend uh, submitting an application there. Okay, yeah. Lucy? Yeah, adding to what Anthony said, um, I would say my experience was that I applied quite late in the internship process. So even though I got sort of an enrollment acceptance into the program in October, I only really began applying in January. Um, and that was something that I wish looking back, I should have been applying in October because they can get quite competitive. Um, so my first tip is if you're interested in, the, in applying would be the earlier the better. Don't even wait for, if, if you have that uh, wham, that's okay. I would start applying then and there um, because a lot of places only take students six months in advance. 
Um, I was lucky enough in January that I actually was able to get an internship and that was with the British Consulate General in Melbourne. And I didn't apply for a consular corps. It was one that was advertised directly to the Uni Melbourne internship students. Um, but if I wouldn't have got that internship, I would not have found an internship before the deadline. And just yeah. a quick note, a lot of the um, a lot of the placements in Canberra, for instance, at, at research institutes, they tend to want you to apply by October or September. So if you are looking to um, take a placement for semester one next year, look for it right now. Yeah, I think it's important to mention as well, um, something I didn't at the start when going through the subject, but once you go through the application process and you get accepted into the subject, they send you a list of um, businesses and different places of which you can then apply to with their emails and information about contacting them. Um, so that's important to note as well. So when you go into a subject, you're not sort of just expected to do it all yourself. You are helped and provided support by the uh, subject coordinators and other people in the subject. So it's important to mention that. I was just going to say, yeah, um, at the same time, it's very much do it yourself. So while there is some slight support, for example, I, I reached out to an organization that um, wanted for some reason the, the university internships to go through the university. So they wanted the university to contact them. Um, and when I asked um, the like SSPS uh, faculty, they kind of, I don't know if they did it or not, but it was a really delayed response there. Um, so yeah, but the research list that comes out is really, really helpful. Um, but it's also good to have some some ideas in mind yourself for what you're interested in. Yeah, I, I could second that. I had one or two that were saying that they wanted direct contact from either your subject coordinator or someone else. And normally, I guess, when you're sending the emails, they give you like a template of what they want you to send. And you're meant to include the subject coordinator's details on there. But some of them can be a bit picky with the way you proceed. And also that 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 50 business list is not something you have to stick to. Like Lucy was saying, then you, it's quite easy to go outside of it and find stuff um other consulates etc that are not on that list and um you know humanitarian organizations etc some of them also have restrictions on them so some of them are particularly looking for women some of them are particularly looking for person with this that background or experience so that's also important to bear in mind what was your application process like then um, well, I was, yeah, I was going to add at the end, I guess, from my perspective, because I did, ended up dropping out of the subject, so I didn't proceed with it. But I thought, and this would be a lesson I'd like to pass on for other people, is like what you were saying about submitting an application process in January, that it does take time for these things to proceed. You might be going to multiple interviews, you might be going to uh, conversations on the phone might be happening, you might be documents being sent back and forth. So. Uh, with my process, I thought I could go overseas and still be able to have time to do this. And I found when I came back, I just didn't have enough time to do um, a lot of the steps required. And then was a bit too late in proceeding with um, my interest in certain in certain businesses. So it's important that you start early or at least put the lay the groundwork down so that you, it's easier to proceed later on and to get in contact with these businesses. Yeah. Does anyone have anything else to add? Um, yeah, I mean, just, just two more things, I guess. Um, I got rejected a lot, um, <laughs> or more, I think more, more frequently, um, I didn't get responses. Um, so just also noting that, um, rejection will happen and it's kind of great because the more you get rejected, the more used to you, used to it you get. Um, 
And so, so just for anybody who's going to apply, you will get rejected and that's absolutely fine um, because, you know, someone else will take you. But, but one thing that you can do to either minimize the rejection straight up is by one, researching the organizations you're interested in, reading through their publications if they do it, or understanding really what they're about, and then sort of crafting tailored emails or phone calls um, to really emphasize what you can add to their organization or why you're really passionate about interning with them. And yeah, that's, that's my take. Yeah, and I guess also be prepared for people not responding as well, because I had that yeah. once or twice where they just don't come back to you. It is what it is. You just got to move on and keep going and roll with the punches. It is, it's, it's such as the business world, I guess. Um, <laughs> do we want to move on to the, the internship itself and what you guys got out of it? Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anthony, you might want to go first because yours is pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, I had a few difficulties uh, after getting accepted into my position. Um, which um, it should probably serve as a warning um, preemptive to um, what everyone else will be doing next year. Um, when you do get paired up with an organisation, in my case, the Australian Consulate, your place of employment does need to sign a contract with the university and there are various clauses. And obviously, initially, you don't read over them. You just, ex you just expect that um, it'll happen quite easily from there because you've already got the placement. But in my case, the Sri Lankan consulate did not want to sign the uh, contract because of the clause surrounding intellectual property and how a lot of their um, documents or how, how I source their documents uh, might be used in the assessments for the internship subjects. So in the end, they couldn't reach an agreement. I ended up um, starting work experience there outside of the university subject instead. Yeah, overall, like it was still a workable situation, ignoring the facts that the entire thing got cancelled when the coronavirus hit Victoria. Tough luck. Yeah, I know. <laughs> At the very least, maybe have a couple of options if you can. St okay, story time. Um... Initially, um, once I was sort of accepted into the British consulate in Melbourne, they sort of ran me through, like, I guess, what, it, what you normally do. So um, for consulates, I think that typically involved sort of a couple of components. Um, one was described to me sort of like ad hoc work, like help that they needed maybe around the office or so forth, classic internship duties. Um, the second was sort of attending some of their events and helping with um, the diplom diplomatic engagement. Um, and the third was obviously sort of the research component, which is required by the university. Um, and so I started my internship maybe bef a week before COVID really took off. Um, and so my first experience was going to the Grand Prix and that sort of gave me an idea. I could really see like how the British consulate engaged because they were engaging in things and that I didn't expect them to be involved with such as the Grand Prix. Um, apparently they had a whole um, thing dedicated to like promoting James Bond when, um, wow. <laughs> yeah, just again, gives you an idea of like how, how wide uh, engagement can go and what it can be seen as. But then COVID hit, and so obviously that changed. Um, so my experience, I guess, it's it's mostly going to be relevant for people who are doing remote internships, which most people are and still might be next year. 
once COVID hit, I essentially got one day in the office um, in which they prepared me to work from home. Um, and then I was working from home, interning two days a week from, from my bedroom. And that was obviously a really strange experience at the beginning. And that was because I didn't really know people there. Like I'd met them maybe once. The, day, the one day I was in the office, um, half the people were already working from home. So I was emailing people who I didn't know. And the other thing was the consulate at the time was in uh, quote unquote crisis mode because they were dealing with flight cancellations, chartered flights to get people home, people stranded. So it was kind of hectic. And for that reason, it was really, really unusual, um, an unusual experience. They were also doing like shift work. So, so some people were doing night shifts and my supervisor was one of them, uh, which meant wow. that the con, yeah, yeah. Uh, which meant that the contact especially got a bit weird. But essentially, I started off working like on a, on a project that was ironically on airport uh, airport technologies, um, and it was looking to <laughs> yeah, it was looking to um, I guess sort of bring like bring an event together between airports and airlines um, technologies because the UK is quite big on technology. But yeah, that sort of died down. And to be honest, it wasn't really what I was that interested in. So what I did was I got in contact with them and sort of said like, hey, like I, I'm sort of doing well on this, but I think I'm sort of nearing the end of my research here. Um, what I am actually interested in are like X, Y, and Z. And one of the things that I was really interested in was sort of climate change and climate change politics. And so fortunately for me, the consulate had some work going on climate change at the time. Essentially, there was a, the UN Conference of Parties, which was being hosted by the UK um, to do climate negotiations. It was meant to be in November this year, but got moved. And I was put on to sort of look at what the states under the Melbourne consulate's umbrella, so the, the consulate looks after South Australia, Tasmania and Victoria, to look at what climate action was being taken there in those states, what stakeholders were involved. It was super broad. And then sort of to map out an engagement strategy for the consulate to promote engagement in climate action and awareness and lobbying in, in the lead up to the conference of parties. So yeah, so that ended up being my project for two, two and a half, three months. And in that time, I looked at legislation, stakeholders, in the government, non-governmental stakeholders, initiatives, policies, et cetera, et cetera. I looked at a whole bunch of things, but I got some really re rewarding sort of experiences out of it. So they allowed me to present um, my work to both the UK Consulate General um, and, yeah. and other staff there at the, um, at the consulate, as well as um, to policy, uh, climate policy advisors um, in the UK High Commission in Canberra. It's just on a few more points. Working from home got really bloody difficult. Um, I got kind of bored and I couldn't really stay on track. Like there were some days where I would just like literally do nothing. Um, and then like, I'd sort of like have to set really tight deadlines for myself just so I got my work in on time. But I will say they were fantastic with communicating to me. Um, they would hold weekly um, Zoom sort of meetings with the whole um, staff to check in and they were really inclusive of me there um, and called to check up on me in it a lot and developed some good relationships out of there. So I'm still talking to some people in the consulate today.
particularly since there's a there's a high chance or a fairly high chance that you'll also be working from home over summer or semester one in 2021 it might be wise to hold off your internship um, if you can't guarantee that you'll be working in an office because not all not all um for not all organizations have the ability have the resources to do remote internships but i mean the benefit of remote internships is that you might be able to do um to intern at places where you wouldn't have otherwise been able to places that are overseas or interstate if you don't have those resources yeah i think that's a good point as well actually in the the comment about being able to do particular internships that you wouldn't normally be able to um mm. i can relate to that I, I started interning after I finished my master's at um, the Peru Australian Chamber of Commerce. It's in Sydney, so normally I wouldn't have been able to intern there because of the distance and I would have to travel to Sydney. It wouldn't have been something I could have done. Um, but because of COVID, I've had the opportunity because they were looking for research assistants to do stuff. I've been able to insert myself into that process and, and it is rewarding. Um, and working from home isn't necessarily bad if you are interested in doing research that might not necessarily need you to be directly interacting with people from the business etc cetera, etc cetera. so well yeah i mean the reason why i kind of tailor picked who we have on the podcast today is because for me and anthony's case it can show you how through my own fault if you're too late on things it becomes an issue and through no fault of anthony's that if you if you pick an internship that might not be able to provide you what you're looking for or has a problem with the university, then that can backfire on you. So, and with Lucy's case, obviously it's one that she's found that's been very beneficial to, and also one that's been able to include her within a large mechanism of moving parts in a way that's benefited her interests. I'd want to say thank you to Lucy and Anthony for joining me. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having us. As always, we have weekly Zoom catch-ups on Wednesday evening from 8pm, so make sure you join us there as well. Keep an eye out on our social media for other upcoming events, including an alumni event. Other than that, you can email us, find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. On Facebook, you can find us on the Empyro page and also the closed Facebook group called Empyro Students for more detailed academic information and discussions from the MIR cohort at the University of Melbourne. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of EmpyroCast. Anarchy is what students make of it. Future and past episodes of EmpyroCast can be found on our website at www.empyro.org. To get in touch with the Empyro committee, please email admin at empyro.org. Empyro is proudly affiliated and supported by the Graduate Student Association at the University of Melbourne. EmpyroCast is an independent production and the views expressed are the views of the host and the featured students. They do not in any way represent the views of the University of Melbourne, Empyro or the Graduate Student Association. Special thanks to our editor Wing Kwan for editing this episode for us. So that's it for episode two. The hosts were Sunny, Ben and Erica, and we hope to see you soon in our next episode. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and bye for now.